we're getting started, and I actually am really excited for this lesson um, because, uh, for for one, we're gonna move. Um, today is the last day that we're gonna be on that first step one of the interpretive journey, right? How to read a book um, in depth, um, a biblical book and glean as much as you can just by reading your English Bible. So, and then, because next week we're going to start uh, studying a little bit the context and the history behind and the culture, all those things. So, anyways, but we should start with a word of prayer. Um, if you, you know, want to come forward a little bit, just if you're not listening well or can't see the image <laughs> so good, it's up to you. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your loving kindness toward us. Uh, Lord, we are so thankful that it is your kindness that draws us to yourself. Lord, we are uh, sinners to the core and yet you have loved us in such a wonderful way. Lord, we're thankful that we can delight in those truths um, and that you're committed uh, to sanctify us and to grow us. And the means by which we, we do grow is through your word, even as Peter refers to it as the milk that we eagerly um, long for. I do pray, Lord, that as we get deeper in some of these passages here, it will be an encouragement to um, people here and that they will see more things in your word that they, they have seen before. Uh, give them a greater love. Give them a greater zeal for uh, your word, Lord. I, we're just thankful for a, a church that takes your word seriously, and I pray that we will continue to do that. Help us uh, during this time, in Jesus' name, amen. I was uh, watching a lecture the other day on um, the importance of biblical interpretation. Uh, it was uh, Kevin DeYoung, and he, you know, he was making a point that, boy, today is really hard to have a discussion about the meaning of Scripture because everyone has their own interpretation, and they said, well, but that's your interpretation. This is not, you know, so, and, and it goes both ways because we would say the same thing, right? Well, that's your interpretation. <laughs> so how do we get to, uh, um, to understand the meaning? So we're going to touch on meaning, you know, a few lessons down the road. But even as you're doing a careful reading, that in and of itself already helps you to be on a track to not, go off the rails and out of the context and out of the, um, really what the book is intended for. So by now, of course, you are well on your way to becoming an expert at reading and observing the Bible. We have discussed how to read sentences. Eric taught that one. Then um, at last week, we talked about how to read a little bit bigger um, uh, a paragraph with several sentences, and we have suggested a few things to look for when we're reading. So, keep encouraging you to look, look, and observe. And some of the assignments that I gave, um, I do want the exam that I gave last week, uh, the <laughs> quiz. 
Um, it's a take-home quiz, and we have another one for today. So you'll keep track. You see, Kathy gets excited with the, the <laughs> quiz. <laughs> um, and so I do want to continue to encourage that, that scrutinizing the word and, and the, the verbs and the sentences and the connections between them. So I want to encourage you to keep working hard, um, especially on that, you know, normally there'll be a passage assigned in our textbook, uh, journey into God's word. At the end of each chapter, he will assign you a passage to do that kind of study. So I want to encourage you to work on, on those um, whenever you have a chance and, and bring them and, you know, share that with me. I'd love to take a look at it and um, give you more suggestions and things to work through. So this class then focuses on discourses. The term discourse, and I put a definition there for your notes. So this is part of chapter four, um, but just the, the last two points, I think, start on point eight. So it doesn't have everything. That's why I included here on your notes. Um, I used the extended version of our textbook by Duval and Hayes, and so that relying heavily on, on, on their notes. So the term discourse refers to the units of connected text. They're longer than paragraphs. There are other terms that we use to describe this um, discourse, such as the story or the pericope or an episode or a unit of unity of thought or a chapter. So within a chapter, you would have several paragraphs, and some chapters are shorter, some chapters are longer. You co if you compare the four Gospels, you see that the chapters in Luke are very long compared to the chapters in Mark, for instance, or um, in Matthew. So um, a discourse can be a smaller episode within a story. So if you're reading through First Samuel and then you, got, you come across the story of David and Goliath. So that's a pericope. This is a, a larger unit of narrative. Or it could be the longer story itself. So within First Samuel, we have the story of Samuel, have the word, story of Saul, and then we have the story of David. So they're bigger sections. A discourse can be two related paragraphs in one of Paul's letters, and we shouldn't be hung up on the terminology or the definition. Really, the goal is to tackle those large chunks and have kind of a um, bird bird's eye view. You know, where you're moving from. Sometimes we get so focused on one verse, and I, I can think of this even uh, through my counseling, sometimes reading through something, and I realize that if I focus too much on one sentence, I'm not understanding the whole of it. Um, so I failed on that, and I think it's easy to, um, to do it. Um, so when we look at Scripture, yes, we want to know what each word means. We also want to see the whole, so we don't. Is that a, a saying in English? You don't want to get too close to the apple that you lose sight of the, the tree. So 
The Bible is not a collection of short, disconnected sentences or unrelated paragraphs. The Bible is a story. Uh, there's themes that are intertwined throughout the text from paragraph to paragraph, numerous markers, connections that tie these paragraphs together. While it is critical to start the small details at a sentence level, it is imperative that we move, we move from move on to the paragraph level and then to the discourse level. God's message is not restricted to these small units of text. Much of the message of the Bible is embedded in a larger units, larger units of text. Discovering this message requires us to make observations at a discourse level. How do we see and observe these larger chunks of text? The answer is not complicated. Everything that you have learned already in chapters 3 and 4 about sentences and paragraphs also applies to these discourses. So word repetition, we're going to see that again today. Or uh, the relationship between a cause statement and the effect statement, uh, moving from a general to a specific um, the use of lists, the use of the conjunctions, therefore, um, and so forth. And all these are applicable to the study of discourses. The basic discipline that you are already developed so far from chapters 3 and 4, involving uh, focused, intensive observation, is exactly the skill, the skill that you need to sink in your, your teeth into longer unities, unities of the text. However, today we'll add a few more to your list there, to your uh, entourage of uh, tools to study the Bible. We'll also illustrate these features for you with some really intriguing passages, uh, things that I, I didn't see before studying this, those um, areas. But before we get there, um, we, I want to bring a lesson from the master of observations. All right. This is Sherlock Holmes. So if you're familiar with oops, the audio on, <laughs> uh, this is part of a movie of uh, Sherlock Holmes' sister, Enola Holmes, who is also a detective. <laughs> so... Um, Sherlock Holmes continues to fascinate many people, uh, generation after generation, through the reprinted books, TV series, updated movies. Likewise, we all like watching some crime scene uh, investigation, right? Um, in TV shows, this the parallel in, in, with Sherlock Holmes, and I appreciated what he said there. You know, the truth is always there. You just need to look for it. And as you are studying the Bible, that, that is the spirit that we should bear. Uh, the parallel between Sherlock Holmes' method and the serious kind of close observation needed in Bible studies close indeed. And I like that it's this, even an analogy like this, it, it is flawed. And, and why is that? Because we're not just observing and uh, dissecting a sect of facts or data, we're trying to solve a problem. We are entering in a dialogue with the all-powerful and loving God. We want to hear correctly what he's saying to us so that we grow closer to him and mature in our Christian lives. So with no more delays, let's 
jump right into our first point here, connections between paragraphs and episodes. Where are these connections? After reading carefully and observing thoughtfully at the sentence level and at the paragraph level, it is important to ask how your paragraph in the letters or your episode in the narratives relates to and connects to with, it, with each other, with other paragraphs or in sentences that come before and those that come after it. So far, we have focused on the relationships between phrases, clauses, sentences. We have looked at the cause and effect relationships, general to specific relationships, conditional clauses or res resultant or consequential effects, and other relational features within the sentences between sentences. These same features will also often connect paragraphs and episodes. Look for those connections. Uh, one way to clue you in even in a larger paragraph or, uh, or maybe two or three chapters that might be related is you see terms being repeated. You know, you see some words that are being repeated. So look for those repeated words and repeated themes. Sometimes the author might use a synonym or the idea of um, something that is similar in order to connect those events. So look for logical connections like cause and effect. Be sure to note the conjunctions between the paragraphs. In narrative episodes, pay attention to the time sequence of each episode. And remember, keep looking, keep digging, keep searching for more in your text. Don't stop after one short glance at the text. Immerse yourself in the passage. Search for these connections. They are critical to the meaning, to understanding the meaning. So let me give you an example here from Mark chapter 8. Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Um, when I'm preparing to preach, you know, primarily at 1 Samuel, um, this is one of the things that I use to try to find out what is the main theme of this chapter. Uh, what are the things that connect them together, the, all these paragraphs, these sentences together? So I'm finding those repetitive words um, and, or conjunctions really points out to what really the passage is all about. So Mark chapter 8, and we are starting on verse 20, uh, 20, 22 through 26. Um, am I? You know. Yeah. And they came to Bethsaida, and they thought a blind man, um, they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. And take, taking the blind man by the land, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see man, for I see them like trees walking around. Then, again, he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And so then, I, I, you know, taken by itself, this, this passage is a little strange. I mean, do you, you've seen people like trees? People, you know, they're not people. You've seen trees. <laughs> 
Why does Jesus only heal the man partially at first? Um, is he unable to heal the blind person completely all at once? Not at all. We have seen him doing that um, in other texts. Why does Jesus ask the man if he can see anything? If he knew, because he knows all things, you know, that his vision was not completely restored quite yet. Does he know? Is he uncertain about his healing ability? At first, the man can see nothing. Then he can see partially, but then he can see clearly. There is a progression there. Finally, Jesus enabled him to see clearly. Is there a point to this? Well, let's look at the surrounding episodes and look for some connections. Perhaps the connections will help us to understanding this puzzling passage. So turn back to verse 14. Verse 14. And sometimes the authors of the gospel, um, they might not have the events on exact chronological order of things and how they happened. Um, they, they have an agenda. They have a theme for their gospel. And in order to do that, they will maybe rearrange some things just to emphasize the connection between them. So verse 14 um, after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside man which can defile him. Oh, actually, I'm reading chapter 7, I'm sorry. Um, verse 14 from chapter 8. <laughs> and it says, And they had forgotten to take the bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of, it, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you do not have bread? Do you not yet see or understand do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes you do not see, and having ears you do not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves and the five thousands, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, Twelve. When I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to Jesus. And that's where we just started. Um, then the following episode after that paragraph that we read is on verse 27. So verse 27 through 30. It says that Jesus went along with uh, his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, What do you people say that I am? Who do they say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, or others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But do you not, do you say, who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them not to tell um, to tell no one about him. So what is the connection? 
Uh, let me make some observations here for uh, these passages and how do they connect. Well, so all three episodes are basically dialogues. You see Jesus talking or the disciples talking or Peter talking or um, the, the blind man talking. In all three episodes, Jesus asks a question. In the first episode of Jesus' dialogue is with his disciples. In the third episode, the dialogue is also with his disciples. The middle episode is different. Jesus' dialogue is with a blind man. In other words, the dialogue with the blind man is bracketed between both sides of the dialogue with his disciples. Is there a suggested comparison or contrast between the, the, these dialogues? The middle episode mentions the village twice. So verses um, 23 and verse 26 mentions that they, they were in a village. And the third episode mentions on verse 27 that um, they were at the villages of, um, of Caesarea. So Jesus ends the blind man episode by forbidding him to go back into the village. Jesus is ending the third episode by forbidding the disciples to tell anyone about him. You, you, you tracking already the similarities? The middle episode revolves around the terms related to seeing. Jesus kept saying, do you not see these things? Observe the following repetition. Um, then for the, the middle section, uh, a blind man, the blind man on verse 23. Uh, still on verse 33, he says that he had his spit on the blind man's eyes. Then verse 23, yet, do you see anything? Verse 24, he looked up, involving clearly his vision. Um, verse 24, I see people. Um, they look like trees. It's another one. Jesus put on his hand on the man's eyes, verse 25. Let's do in verse 25. His eyes were opened, and then his sight was restored. And then lastly, he saw everything clearly. In light of the preponderance of the terms related to seeing in the blind man's episode, it is interesting to note similar terms used in reference to the disciples in the first episode and the preceding episode. So, do you, do, you, do you still not see? That's on verse 17 on the section uh, that he's talking to the disciples. And then in verse 18, do you have eyes but fail to see? The repetition of seeing the first two episodes is undoubtedly an important connection between the two. Note that seeing in the blind man episode is being used literally, referring to a literal vision. In the first episode, however, seeing is used figuratively, referring to understanding. Jesus makes this particularly clear when he states on verse 17, do you, see, do you still not see or understand? Um, it's not that they were literally blind, it's that they didn't understand what happened. I have multiplied this bread, and you're worried about th those things? I am God. I can provide for you. That was Jesus' point with them. Jesus repeats the nuance as he ends the episode with the repeated question, do you still not 
understand. Verse 21. Then Peter's statement on A29, you are the Messiah, you're him, indicates that Peter now understands who Jesus is, even though others may not yet. It, in essence, he now sees clearly. So how do we conclude what we conclude about this connection? In the first episode, Jesus asks his disciples some questions and realizes that he did not really understand who he is. They see only partially at some point. But on the third episode, however, they see clearly, at least Peter did, acknowledging him as the Messiah. The middle story, the blind man episode, is an illustration of the process that the disciples are experiencing. It is not so much a story about Jesus' healing as it is a story about a man's seeing. He only sees partially at first, as do the disciples. Then he sees clearly, and as do the disciples. So the blind man episode is really an interruption in the flow of a section about the disciples' understanding of Jesus, of who Jesus is. It provides a colorful, real-life illustration of what was occurring in the life of the disciples. Um, I think that is pretty cool because we, you know, we read those things sometimes and we don't really uh, pay attention to the details. Why is that that he decided to put these two together here? Is there a correlation between them? I mean, we, we got to be careful with that so we don't read too much into it and start allegorizing or, you know, spiritualizing things that are not there. All right. So let's move to a second um, point there is the story shifts. That that really, another way of saying it, is major breaks and pivots. As you read larger unities of a text, look for the critical places where the story seems to take a new turn. In the letters, this takes the form of a major break. The writer will shift, shift topics, frequently changing from a doctrinal discussion to a practical discussion. These shifts are important to note. Such shifts occur in narrative also, but they usually take a form of pivot episodes, things that will make a, a huge turn on that episode. Usually, a shift in the direction of the story will be signaled by an unusually significant episode. So let's look at an, epi uh, an example of each, both in the letters and in the narratives. Um, look at, turn to the letter of the Ephesians. Ephesians. We studied that last year in our fellowship groups. Last year? Well, was that the beginning of this year still? That we're, in, yeah, so until May we were studying Ephesians. And you will notice that Paul starts with a presentation. He presents a doctrinal explanation about how the, um, Ephesians' new life in Christ and the implications of that new life, especially regarding the unity of Jews and Gentiles in that new life. Then on chapter 4, verse 1, there is a major break on that, um, on that uh, discussion about what Christ has done in us and saved us. And he turns on, therefore, um, he's, you know, anytime you see therefore, you should be looking for something bef before that. 
Uh, for Paul now begins to give practical exhortations about how the Ephesians ought to put, the, put on doctrine, the doctrines of chapters 1 to 3, into practice. So chapters 4 through 6, he's going to put, um, he gives an even application of uh, those doctrinal statements that he had on chapters 1 through 3. One way to spot this kind of break is by closely observing the change of verbs. So in Ephesians chapter 1 to 3, he uses a larger number of explanatory or descriptive types of verbs. There are almost no imperatives on chapter 1 to 3. It's mostly indicatives. He did this. He did that. So verses, um, chapter 1, verse 3. Let's quickly glance through some of them there. Chapters, uh, chapter 1, 3 says that who has blessed us. Um, verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Um, chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your tra- transgressions and sins. Um, then verse 5, God made us alive. Verse 5 still, it is by grace you have been saved. Verse 6, God raises up. Um, verse 14 of chapter 2, he himself is our peace. Chapter 3, verse 6, the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. And then, starting on chapter 4, verse 1, however, there, the imperative verbs dominate that, those chapters. So chapter 4, verse 2, be completely humble. Uh, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Um, verse 17, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Uh, verse 25, put, put off falsehood. Verse 27, do not give the devil a foothold. Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, follow God's example. Chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Chapter 6, verse 11, put on the full armor of God. So these verb change, change signals to the major shift in the letter in the book. Overall, the two halves connected as a cause and effect relationship. The cause is explaining, explained in chapters 1 to 3, what Christ has done for us and the implications of what he has done for us. He has saved us. He has given his spirit. He has transferred us um, to his kingdom. While the effect of all that has been said in chapter 1 to 3 is a live in a manner that is worthy of Christ and all that he has done for us. So a similar major break occurs between Romans chapter 1 through 11. Uh, chapter 1 through 11 deals with doctrine. And then the last four chapters, 12 through 16, Paul is giving a practical application of all those doctrines. Now, in the narrative passages, they will look, this is going to look a little different. 
uh, these shifts usually are episodes. They function as pivots because the story will pivot on that one episode that will cause a major turn in the narrative. So a good example of this is in 2 Samuel. Uh, if, if you read the, the book of 2 Samuel, in the first half of the story is about David's rise to power, right? Saul is dead, now he's uh, on the throne of Israel and trying to reconcile the people. So he's, everything is going great for David. Um, he wins the civil war and succeeds Saul as a king. Um, he conquers Jerusalem, um, brings the ark to the new capital, and then he receives a covenant from God from chapters 5 to 7. He wins all of his battles, defeating the Philistines, the Moabites, the Arameans, the Edomites, and Ammonites from chapters 8 through 10. So life is good for David and the nation. Israel is prospering. Now, the second half of the book, however, is incredibly different. Events in that half are almost all negative for the king. David's oldest son rapes his, um, Amnon rapes his sister Tamar, his half-sister, prompting Absalom, Tamar's brother, to kill Amnon in chapter 13. Next, Absalom, a son whom David loves, conspires against him in creating a bloody civil war. David is forced to flee from Jerusalem, and eventually Absalom is defeated and killed, but David remains heartbroken. Chapters 14 to 19. Next, another rebellion arises in chapter 20. Then David then ends his career by fighting the Philistines again in chapter 21. In contrast to his earlier defeat of the Philistines and his single-handed defeat of Goliath, David becomes exhausted, and he has to be rescued by his troops. Other heroes killed the giants this time in 2 Samuel. Not him, but his, his, um, his soldiers. The difference between the first half and the second half of Samuel, 2 Samuel is striking. The strong, victorious, confident David in the first half of the book is contrasted sharply with the insecure weak and indecisive David in the second half. What happens in the middle that leads to this change? What is the pivot? What is the turn that happens in that narrative? The pivot event is chapters 11 and 12. David sins by sleeping with Bathsheba and having her husband Uriah killed. Prior to this episode, David cruises life as the beloved and respected national hero. Afterwards, David's magnificent reputation begins to unravel. It is crucial for understanding 2 Samuel to see this pivot and to note the central role uh, it plays in changing the direction of the story. Here's another example, even in the Psalms. Um, I remember at some point here I did a little study on Psalm 73, and you see the, oh, let's turn there, let me give you one more example. Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph, and basically um, Asaph is embittered 
with life. He's thinking life is unfair. Um, he, he almost slipped, he said. And then the second half, he is into himself. He realizes, no, God will judge the wicked. Life is not unfair. God is holy. I delight in him. So what, what changed there? There is a hinge. And the hinge is on verse 15. If I had said I would speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When, what happened, when happened that change? When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came to the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. So here he is, depressed and frustrated, but then he gets in, in the temple and, and he realizes, boy, what have I been thinking? Uh, let me dwell my mind on the things that are true. So there was that shift there. All right. Um, the third element that we should be looking for is interchange. Interchange. The third point there is interchange. It's a literal, dev literally literary device used primarily in narratives. That involves contrasting and comparing two stories at the same time as part of the overall story development. Usually the narrative will move back and forth from one story to another or from one character to another, often to show the contrast between the two of them. The early chapters of 1 Samuel, and I'm going to refer to this because you have been studying it. So 1 Samuel exhibit this feature. In the first few chapters of the story, develops between two contrasting families. You will remember which ones? The family of Eli and the family of Elkanah and Hannah, right? Eli, the fat, lazy priest, and his two decadent, disobedient sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are contrasted with devout Hannah and her pious, obedient son, Samuel. The two stories unfold at the same time and with the narrative moving back and forth from one to another. It, it, you know, sometimes you see that in movies too, right? When you're watching a movie and they'll show you one character and then they'll move to another character and they're trying to, to, to contrast them. I'm like, oh, look at how miserable the life of this person is. Look how wonderful this one is. Um, the two stories unfold um, at the same time. So as you read a narrative, look for the interchange between the different stories. Next, look for some purpose for that interchange. Why is that that he puts this character side by side? Why does the author employ this literary device in telling of his story? In 1 Samuel, the interchange is used to underscore the strong contrast between Samuel and the corrupt priesthood that he replaces. Luke also uses interchange in the middle of the chapters of Acts. Uh, if you have been reading, if you read through Acts, you will notice this. There is this interchange between characters uh, to present a transition in the central characters from Peter to Paul, from the Gentile mission to the, uh, from the Jewish Jew um, mission to the Gentile mission. Peter is the central character of the first seven chapters, 
And then Paul, as Saul back then in chapter 7, is already introduced. He's already introduced at that point. And then chapter 8 as well. Then Peter returns to the central stage on chapter 8, verse 14 to 25. Then Paul, as Saul, is the focus of chapter 9, his conversion. But Peter has the most important uh, an important encounter with Cornelius in chapter 10. Then Paul returns briefly in chapter 11, followed by Peter's miraculous escape from prison and his departure from Jerusalem in chapter 12. Then in chapter 13, Paul moves on to the center stage, and he remains a central character in the story for the next 15 chapters. Um, what is the purpose of the interchange in Acts? What, why, why did he spend more time talking about Philip? Why well, didn't spend more time talking about the other apostles, what they've done? Have you asked this question? <laughs> um, what is Luke trying to say by switching back and forth? Clearly, he's not contrasting a positive character with a negative character, like Samuel did. Both Peter and Paul are exemplary characters in the book of Acts. In fact, Luke seems to be stressing the similarities of the true Paul who will do the same miracles that Peter does and preach just as powerfully as Peter does. Luke uses interchange to demonstrate that Paul is as powerful and authoritative as the apostle um, Peter and to show that the message of Christ that began with the Jews is now spreading to the Gentiles. You know, even I think it's in Galatians that Paul says, you know, just as Peter have been appointed to minister to the Jews, I was appointed to minister to the Gentiles. So it, it, this is exciting to pay attention to, you know. Um, you, you can pick up on those differences in the narrative. Then our fourth element here, and this one is a cool one that is not so evident, um, and it's called chiasm. Chiasm. It's a fascinating literary feature that is seldom used in English, but is also, but is employed frequently by biblical authors, especially in the Old Testament. So in a chiasm, this list of items, ideas, and events, they are structured in such a manner that the first item parallels to the um, to the last item. Then the second item parallels to the next to the last item. And then they, uh, in the center, we'll see what is the main point. Um, for an illustration of chiasm, I'm going to give you this silly example that we I found in the, on a textbook. Um, so just pay attention to this series of sentences. I got up this morning, got dressed, and drove into town. I worked hard all day, returned home, put on my PGAs, and went to bed. All right? To analyze the chiasm, we'll list, um, you will list the events and look for the parallels. We will list the first item as A, and then the corresponding parallel, the A prime. So I got up this morning, got dressed, and got dressed parallels to put on my PJs. Right? I drove into town. I returned home. They're contrasting. And then what is at the center? I worked 
all day, work hard all day. It doesn't have, it doesn't have any parallel. So it's kind of the center point. And normally when um, the biblical authors do that, when they do have a major point, it's not necessarily to be a chiasm. You don't need that major point. But when there, there is a major point, it is to emphasize what is central in that narrative. So, frequently, in chiastic structures, if the middle event does not have a parallel, it functions as the main point or the focal point of the chiasm. The stress of this ridiculous example is on the narrators working hard all day. That was the one that I just gave you often. However, there is a middle event in the chiasm. Chiasm can be simply short, can be simple and short. For example, just let's look at one verse. Um, Psalm 76, this is God, uh, Psalm 76, verse 1. And um, it says, God is renowned in Judah, and in Israel his name is great. So can you see there the chiasm? God, A, God is renowned. A prime, his name is great. Um, B, in Judah. B prime, in Israel. Um, sometimes chiasms are lengthy and complex, and they can be, so it's kind of subtle and, and difficult to spot this. Um, there is often disagreement, even among scholars, over whether the author intended the chiasm or whether perhaps the chiastic structure is merely the imagination of the reader. I think that the author did those things on purpose. Um, some authors. So let's read, for instance, the story of uh, in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11. Um, it's uh, the story of the Tower of Babel. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. So this, this says the word of God. Now, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad, scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, there is, there are one people, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad and from, over, from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. All right. Let's see if we can spot here the... Um, 
the chiasm and there's the structure. All right, so it's a little longer, but you can you can pick up here in some of that um, on verse uh, on the A here, uh, verse one. Uh, there is a description of the whole world, right? And then at the end, of verse nine. There also he describes the whole world. He's describing the whole world. Um, still in verse one, they had one language. Verse 9, the Lord confused their language. Um, in verse 2, they, uh, they were in Shinar and they settled there. Then we have Babel because there, you know, and the rest is the Lord confused their language. So location, location, parallel, parallel. Um, they said, come, let us make bricks. The Lord said on verse 7, come, let us go down and confuse their language. Um, verse 4, come, let us build. Verse 4. Um, and then verse 5, the people were building. Then on verse 4, still a city with a tower. Then verse um, 5 there, where the Lord came to see the city and the tower. And then what is central there on verse 5? But the Lord came down. So this whole thing is happening, and the Lord is trying to contrast. You see, this is how men operates. This is the first um, half of, of the text, really. This is, this is men's intent, and this is how God interferes when he comes down. So the evidence is rather com convincing that in Genesis 11 through 9 has been written in a chiastic literary form. Si six specific words and concepts. And so how do, we, how do we know that these things parallel to one another when you see the words repeating? It's a pretty good clue, or not necessarily the words, but the idea being repeated. So, um, all right, and then the last point here, uh, and then we'll stop, is inclusio. Inclusio, inclusio, I don't know how to, you pronounce the way you want. Um, it's closely related to chiasm, but it's not as complicated as a chiasm. Inclusio is a literary technique in which a passage, a story, or a poem um, has the same or a similar word statement uh, event or theme at the beginning and at the end of that of that passage. So it's kind of bracketed between those two statements. Um, this is also called bracketing or framing. Uh, Psalm 8 is an example of that. Let's turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, um, he starts there on verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Then verse 9, the very last verse there, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So at the very end of the psalm, we find the exact same statement. These two identical statements frame or bracket the rest of the psalm to say, you know, I'm describing now what, how majestic is our God. 
the inclusio is easy to spot if the beginning and the elements are completely identical, like in Psalm 8. However, often inclusio also involves similar events or themes. Sometimes the beginning and ending brackets can be separated by several chapters of narrative. For example, and we're going to study this more next year when we are reading through the Old Testament. Um, but in Joshua chapter 3, verse, uh, chapter 3 through 6, is about how Israel prepares for and then captures the city of Jericho. The story is framed or bracketed by two stories about two individual people. The first story comes from chapter 2, the story of Rahab, Rahab, who believes and is saved. And then there is the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7, who does just the opposite. He disobeys God and he's destroyed. This inclusio indicates that the opening event, Rahab, and the closing event, Achan, provide critical context for understanding the bracketed material, the capture of Jericho. This is the context of it. Achan was involved in it, and so was Rahab. One believes, the other rebels, one is destroyed, the other survives. What, how do we conclude um, our lesson today? In order for us to interpret and understand the Bible, we must first read it carefully, observing all the details. You must observe it at a sentence level, at a paragraph level, at the discourse level. In chapters 3 and 4, uh, listed some of these features to look for, the repetition, the cause and effect, and general to specific, and so forth. Next week, in chapter 5, uh, we're going to uh, add um, more features to our text. So this list, expanded list, is clearly far from exhaustive. You know, I'm just giving you some tools here on how to do a reading. The purpose of the features we have listed is is to get you started in a careful reading. I want really uh, to, to, to encourage you to be more diligent in, in looking for these things that the Lord is bringing in his word. Um, then we're going to move on to understand meaning. Right? These uh, early chapters, however, are critical. I know so far we haven't really talked about interpretation a whole lot, but observation. That's really was the, the theme of these last um, few classes. So the Bible will become boring if you read it because you will never see anything in it that you haven't already seen. So when we read the Bible just quickly, it is easy um, to miss some of these things and you think, oh, but I already know that story. You know, I think kind of funny, like some Sunday school kids the, you know, I already heard that story, you know, well, there is more that you haven't seen yet, you know. Um, so, because it is the word of God, the Bible is a unique piece of literature. It is like a mind that never wears out. One can dig in it for a lifetime and not exhaust it. Likewise, when we study the Bible, we're engaging in a conversation with the infinite God. He's able, of course, to communicate with us in simple and surface terms. But God also wants us to go beyond the initial conversation. He himself is neither simple nor easily grasped by just scheming surface um, information. 
He has provided for us his written word, which is rich and deep and sometimes complex. I, I have been studying the Bible seriously for, I don't know, I think the past 15 years. I started at my home church, and, you know, every time that I read through a book again, I see something new. I notice something new, and that is exciting because the Word of God is never exhausted. Now, I have two questions to conclude here. In chapters 3 and 5, chapters 3 and 4, that is, we have progressed from the micro level to the macro level, right? From the little smaller sentences to the bigger paragraph and then to the major sections. How has this progression deepened your appreciation for Scripture? If you have been doing the assignments, you know, and, and you have been seeing new things, would you mind sharing with us what you're learning? That's very good. So Kathy is really emphasizing here the importance of seeing what wasn't seen before, kind of what happened with the disciples. They saw it, but they didn't understand it. They um, weren't completely convinced. Think about Luke chapter 24 where uh, they have these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're talking with each other, and they know the prophecies and they know the law, but then the Lord opens their understanding, opens their eyes to see who he is and, and what the word means. Very good, Kathy. I'm glad that this is happening. All right, and the second question I have is, reading the Bible seriously can result in a... Uh, a disconnect between the person's heart and their head. What guardrails can we use to prevent this bifurcation from occurring in our lives? Do you understand what I mean? We, we sometimes can get so in-depth and, and, you know, that what, what we know and what we live does not match. How can we avoid that? Mm -hmm. Asking the Lord's help in prayer. Um, I think it is, um, you know, such a, a, a good encouragement um, that I had from my early years as a Christian to, you know, before you read the Bible, pray. Pray that the Lord will open your understanding and that that word will bring conviction, that will bring uh, encouragement and comfort, um, and that you will go beyond. Right, God, I just don't want to, you know, I'm familiarized with this story, but I need you. Um, this is what we call the perspicuity of Scripture. Scripture is clear. God wrote in a way that we can understand and then there's the doctrine of illumination of Scripture, which is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to understand what it's saying. All right. What else? What else can you do to avoid this pitfall? Mm -hmm. That's very good. Dylan's talking about humility when we do approach the Word. Right? I think that we all have the tendency to think, oh, I'm not Saul, <laughs> I'm David. <laughs> Um, I'm not Nabal, I'm David, all right? Um, when we're being exhorted with something, we're thinking, oh, maybe so-and-so, this is applicable to them, but not to me, but 
we we want to take ownership and say god we we don't know everything that we need that we know we, we should know um there's always something in scripture that can be gleaned from even if you have studied that passage in depth what is that that the lord is trying to teach you through that text all right mm -hmm. yeah um Eric is talking about the, the, the really the desire to change and being transformed. I think about Romans 12, 1. That we are transformed by what? The renewing of our mind. And how do we renew our minds? By the word of God. As we read, as we understand it, and as we apply it. All right? Very good. All right, let's pray. I went way beyond. Well, Cody, I'll have one more question there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very good. I think the uh, Cody's talking about the fellowship element, right? Um, that we need one another to remind ourselves from the truths of Scripture, uh, maybe to point us to, you know, I had people that um, had blessed me so much with uh, explaining what the text means and how that relates to, to my life. Um, God did not save us in a vacuum, it saved us and, and it saved a bunch of other people and it brought them together to sharpen one another, to encourage one another. I read through, think about Hebrews thir chapter three. It says, you know, you, you be careful that you're not deceived by the deceitfulness of, of your sinful hearts. Um, so therefore, exhort one another daily. Is it today? As long as it is today, you should be doing that. Good. Very good point. All right. We can pray now. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for your uh, manifold grace uh, and wisdom that we see in your word and um, all the intricacies of it, Lord. I pray that you would uh, excite us to want to know you more, to understand your word better, and how to apply to our lives. Lord, we need you. Um, even as Dylan said, um, we need to be humbled uh, that we are um, frail, sinful, and may we see ourselves um, through the mirror of your word, Lord. Just help us to not be just listeners, but doers of your word. And it's in your precious son's name that we pray. Amen.